Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Who Am I This Time? With me, David Morrissey. Each episode, I'm talking to performers from film, television and theatre about one significant role in their career. It might not always be the role they're most famous for, but in each one, I'll be trying to find out about the preparation, the excitement and the sense of nostalgia that goes with any key role in an actor's lifetime. David Harewood is an actor who has steadily built a long list of TV and film credits since leaving RADA at the age of 21. But in 2011, an opportunity presented itself that would, by his own admission, change his life. That experience of playing David Estes, the Deputy Director of Counterterrorism, in the critically acclaimed HBO series Homeland, resulted in a fascinating chat I had with him during lockdown this summer. Hi, so here I am with uh, David Harewood, and we're here to talk about David Estes on Homeland. Who was the? He was the director of counterterrorism, wasn't he, for the CIA? Yes, uh, kind of di- so deputy director of the CIA, and um, was was heading to be kind of director of. Um, I can't remember. I think it was something like that. <laughs> yeah, it's a huge, huge role, fantastic part, and uh, in a great series. I, I've been familiarising myself with it again, and it was it's really stands up. It's fantastic. But I wanted to start a little bit further back. I just wanted to know, with when you were at drama school, did you do any camera technique stuff? Did you do? Were you trained at drama school for any sort of TV and camera work at all? Not at all. I mean, um, um, I, I, I'm sure they've changed now, but um, you know, we we were trained very much for the theatre and um, projection projecting to the you know the back of the house and, and 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 all that and one of the things that i did one of the things i re- that, that i did uh, uh, um in the early days of homeland when i first got there was i would always go to the set after about a couple of days and get finding my feet i had a terrible first day my accent was all over the place i think i sounded pakistani but i was i was all over the place and i and i thought to myself i've got to give myself a bit of a a lesson here. So I started to kind of go to the set, even on my days off. And I would ask the sound guy for a pair of cans and I would just sit behind and just watch, put the cans on and just sit and observe how particularly Claire and Mandy, how they, how they acted. And it was all their vocal, their vocal, they didn't project at all. And that's one of the things I learned specifically from the Americans 
was just how little you had to do vocally. So I had to kind of relearn my sort of vocal technique to stop projecting and, 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 and sort of make, trying to make sure that the, the makeup people could hear me and the director could hear me behind the screen and uh, forget all of that and just re-educate myself to just take it down and be much more specific. So just before you got it, what were you doing? What, were, what, what, were, what was your life like just before that sort of call came into your, from your agent saying, listen, there's this thing, Homeland, that they're interested in you? And what were, were you in your career? Well, mate, I'd had the worst... <laughs> it was the worst year of my career. Um, partly, well, I mean, I, you know, I've, 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 I had this best mate, a really good friend of mine, Louis, and uh, Italian kid. And he was the one guy who always said to me, you're going to make it. It, Just convinced of it. He said, you're going to make it. I've absolutely no doubt. And um, in 19, I think it was 2010, it was the year I got home, the year before I got Homeland, so it was 29. um, uh, I just got this, a random call out of the blue on a Wednesday afternoon and uh, from, from a friend and he was dead. He... He he suddenly he died suddenly. It was a routine knee operation, and um, routine knee operation should, should have been in and out in twenty minutes. And the surgeon had used this particular technique where it was supposed to suck the blood. He used this 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 piece of equipment that was supposed to suck the blood from the wound, and he'd kind of he'd kind of manufactured it to blow air rather than suck air. And it, 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 it was kind of, the, he thought it was this revolutionary technique, which he'd only done three times before, but it had gone sterlingly. And he was, and Louis had sort of heard about this and thought it was revolutionary. So he went for it. But unfortunately for Louis, um, he was one in a million people, apparently, who have porous bones. So the air was literally going into his bones. And then after the operation, it was like being filled with air bubbles. So it was like getting an embolism. And um, he had a massive heart attack uh, about 20 minutes after the operation and died. And, mate, I was, I was, it's the first thing that's ever broken me. I mean, really broken me. And uh, I couldn't, act, I couldn't act. And, and I always say this to people that, you know, we, we forget that we need an enormous amount of confidence to do what we do. We normalise it, but we really need an, an enormous amount of confidence to do what we do. And I lost it. I couldn't, I, I walked out of auditions. I, I was nervous. I suddenly lost my confidence. So I said to my agent, I think I need to take a break. And I, so I, I didn't work for nine months. And um, that was uh, by choice. That was kind of by, by choice and, and uh, kind of by choice. And, and, then, I, and then as you know, uh, it, it, I, it, it just, it, everything just went away from me. I, I just stopped working. And um, I wasn't getting auditions. And, and, and then when I started to try and get back into it, again, I didn't have that confidence. I, I just didn't have it. Um, went to an audition for Rev. And I got halfway through, the, <laughs> halfway through the audition. And I was pouring with sweat. And I just said, I'm really sorry. I've got I've to go. And I walked out. And I really thought my career was in the bin. And, uh, and then I got this call from my, my American manager saying, this script, Homeland everyone's talking about it. it's going to be great and I, I turned it down I said no nah. I said I've got I've got I'm, I'm done I'm done I said I, I think I'm done and he listened and he went okay okay and then he phoned me up a week later and he said just put yourself on tape for it 
And I said, no, I'm not going to do it. I said, I'm too nervous. I can't do it. And he phoned me up again two weeks later. And he said, look, I've been speaking to them and they're really keen to see your tape. So I kind of went, oh, all right then. And I got the wife to read the offlines. I put my mobile phone on the windowsill, pressed record and just did it into my phone. I didn't even learn it. I read it off the page like that, read it off the page and edited it, sent it, think they'll never see that. About a week later, I get this phone call saying, they really liked your audition. And I went, what? He went, your audition? I said, what for? It's the Homeland. I was, oh, right. And I said, well, I said, do you want me to do it again properly? Because I just literally just read it. And they said, he said, yeah, but they loved your tape. I said, well, let me do a better one. So I got a friend around and he recorded it on his little camera and um, we sent it off. And then again, about a week later, I just got this email saying, congratulations. And I... I just swear, honest is God's honest truth, David. I I rang up my agent. I said, "What? Well, congratulations for what?" He said, "You've just got Homeland." And I kind of I was in like on another planet. And I put the phone down. I looked at my wife, and I went, "I've got it." She says, "What?" I said, "I've got Homeland." And she welled up, and she said, "Do you know what day it is today?" And I went, "No." She went, "It's Louis's birthday." Oh wow! And Dave, I have not stopped working since. Not stopped amazing. working since. And I was on my, and when I, and when, I when I flew to North Carolina to, to, to shoot the pilot, I had to do some banking business. And, um, and I paid a bill and I, re I looked at my account and I realized the weekend before I got Homeland, I had 80 quid in the bank. 80 quid, I was done. I was done. And, and so I, I always say to people, you know, there's that saying, you know, it's always darkest before dawn. I was down to my last shekel and it came in. So um, it was the worst year of my life, the worst year of my life, emotionally and professionally, the, the year before I got Homeland. Just to go back a little bit, because you talked about something very interesting there, which is the tape, the self-tape. And that's something that I think that's not, it's relatively new in what we do, because I think usually what used to happen when I first left drama school is you'd go in, you'd meet the casting director at least, and you'd be in a room with them and they could sort of say to you, maybe slow it down. Maybe so you said that you with Homeland, just because of where you are in yourself, you were just, you just read it and off you went. But how much preparation usually would you do for a self tape? I mean, I learn, I do my best, to, obviously do my best to learn it. I mean, there are some times when, you know, you've got the pages down here a little bit and you, you're just kind of, <laughs> you're just kind of giving it. I actually, I, I actually know uh, the director who, who, uh, who did, um, what's his name? Who did, he was in The Wire with Idris, the, 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 the white, um, the white. Dominic West. Dominic West. Uh, he, who, Dominic West, because he was in the hotel working somewhere, he didn't have anybody to do the offlines. So he just literally did, he just did his lines, left a gap and then went and then left a gap. So it's, wow. it's, it's, and he said, he, he said he found it hilarious, but it was really good. He thought that's the guy. So in, in, in many respects, I don't think it matters that we, you have to be, you need a professional to do it or you need professional lighting because the person that most of the time, the people who make the decisions, they're looking for a specific type. Damien said this when he got home, when he got to Band of Brothers, that, you know, he went, went into the audition and he said he walked, he, he sat there and he said, literally, the character walked in 
And it was between him and this guy. He was American, square-jawed, handsome, six-foot. He said, that's the guy. He said, I've got no chance. And he said, unbelievably, he got it. And he said, the guy, the, the, the director said, it's about an essence. That What we're looking for is the essence. And if you've got the essence of the character, it will come through. So it doesn't matter whether you hire a professional studio with professional lighting or you do it on your mobile phone in your kitchen. If you've got it, they'll choose you. But how much did you know about Estes for that self-tape? Did you just have one scene and his job? Or did you have any background with him? Did they give you... Obviously, you knew he was American, but did you have any any other information about him to help you with that tape? None whatsoever. Um, um, I, I, and, I, and I didn't know about the CIA. I'd never done an American accent before. I, I, I hadn't actually seen... And here's the other thing, is that I... All of my references were kind of blue-collar black American voices. Eddie Murphy, Richard Pryor, you're talking like that. You know, so I thought, he's not going to talk like that. So I had to sort of do a bit of research in, in trying to find... So I looked, you know, looked at CNN. I watched CNN for a couple of days. Look here, Don Lemon. Whenever a black journalist came on, I taped a jer- black journalist. So I sort of amalgamated a sort of a kind of black professional, white-collar voice. And just thought, that's it. I'm just going to make him very, very sort of buttoned up and uh, so, sort of made him very, very straight. And I th- and that that really played in my favour because um, that's exactly what they were looking for. And as soon as they saw it, because they, they said, they told me, you know, because they couldn't find him. Because originally it wasn't even a black character. Originally it was just a white character. They couldn't find him. They said, let's make him anything. So they opened it up to anybody. Still couldn't find him. They said, let's open it up to ethnicities. Let's just go black. And and this kid from England, you know, suddenly, you know, suddenly turned up. Because and- that's true, isn't it? I mean, what, the other thing that happens is they suddenly go, let's go to other territories. Let's go to the UK. Let's go to Australia. Let's fight. You know, it is a world game now in that way, isn't it? Very much so. It's a really global, it's a global industry. And, and not to the chagrin of, of chagrin rather, of, of Americans. They don't. You know, there is a bit of a pushback against that. They don't particularly like it. But, you know, the, 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 the flip side of that for us is that it is a global, um, a global industry now. And you, I mean, I always say to actors, you know, if you get a tape, do it. Because they will look at it because they're, they're looking for somebody. It might as well be you. So, you know, give, give it your all and, you know, give it a good shot. And they will watch it. Most people do watch it. And and if you, as I say, if you've got, if you've got that, what if you've got, they're looking for, you know, you could find yourself on a plane to the states. So you get the you do you get the call from your agent saying congratulations. How far? How from that moment on to being in North Carolina? How long is that period? Do you have? It was well. It was it was a bit of a nightmare actually because it was sixteen days. And and it was Louis's birthday was the was the twentieth of December, so it was also Christmas. So I had to spend all Christmas doing my get my passport ready, getting my writing my visa applications, phoning phoning lawyers in America that I'd never heard of, and you know emailing copies of my passport, and and then to turn it around to turn it around as quick as we could, I had to jump on a plane and fly to Belfast. Um, and, and use the American embassy there. And I, this, this was my nightmare because I'm, I'm, 
This was before I kind of, I'd hardly flown before that. And I hardly had that sort of international experience. So I was late for the airport to pick up my passport. So I sort of, I sort of, I sort of was charging through the airport to get a plane. And then I got on the plane and then it was really windy getting into, um, getting into Northern Ireland. And, you know, they, they had all my, they, they faxed all my stuff through. And the pilot said, you know, we're going to have to go around a couple of times because, you know, landing in, landing in, uh, in Northern Ireland is going to be tricky. And I was like, I need to, I need to get off. The, I need to get to the, the embassy because I've got to get my, I have to get it today to get on the plane tomorrow. And I said, I spoke to the stewardess and I said, look, you know, I explained it. And they said, well, look, what's come, bring your stuff and come up to the front of the plane. And you can sit in, you know, sit at the front of the plane so that you can get off first. So I kind of sat in, in, in the first, in, you know, the first class kind of rose. And then as soon as the doors opened, I tore through the airport, ran through, phoned up the embassy and said, look, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm from England and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm late. The plane's late. And I need to, I have to pick up my passport today. And it was great, actually. The guy was really great, actually. And he was like, oh, you're an actor. He said, oh, okay. I said, look, we're closing in 10 minutes. He said, but don't worry. Don't worry. I'll, I'll put your passport in a sealed envelope and we'll leave it with security at the gate. So, so I mean, I was, I was sweating buckets. So I then had to, I then calmed down a little bit, jumped in the cab, went to the embassy, got through all the American, you know what it's like, got through all the high security, got through to the gate and the guy went, oh, you're the kid that phoned up. Here's your passport. I was so chuffed. And they went straight for a swift half. Pub. But who, who's helping you with all that logistical Nobody. stuff? Nobody. When you're, you're, you're faxing stuff, you're organising lawyers or accountants and stuff like that. Is that your American agent, your UK agents? Is there a manager? Is it the production? Who... who Who's guiding you through all that world? Well, I mean, it's frustrating because obviously, as you know, um, you know, we're eight hours behind. So a, a lot of the times you're waiting for the afternoon to even call somebody. And then you have that hour window from five till six before things close here in order to get the stuff that you want. So you had to be kind of ready to go. So I'd sort of, as soon as four o'clock came around, eight o'clock in the morning, I'd sort of go phone up my agent and say, what do I need? You know, what, what are the forms? Can you get me that form, this form, that form? Rushing off to, um, you know, boots to get your passport size photographs. And then they tell you it's the wrong size photograph and you have to go back and get it again, get the right size photograph. And then getting into the embassy and then waiting in line for the embassy. And so all, all that stuff, you know, you kind of have to kind of do yourself, but but it's, it's I mean, those forms are thick and yeah, and yeah. You, you're, you're, you're sort of, you're sort of filling in stuff as best you can and then sort of faxing them through to God knows who in America and then saying... And all, saying, the time, all that time are you thinking, I'm going to lose this job, yeah. I'm going to lose this job. Yeah, again. all the time I'm thinking, there's somebody else in the wings just waiting to, 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 kind, of, to kind of say, for them to say, you know what, this isn't going to work, we'll get so-and-so in. And, um, and, and I still even thought that I was going to be replaced, you know, during the pilot. You know, I was... I, I, I was and in fact, somebody was. You know, the girl who played um, um, his wife uh, was... A, that happens a lot. That yeah. happens a lot. And, and, it, and it's, it's sad. And we both sat there. In the, I remember we both sat there one day in, in the hotel lobby. And we were kind of having a drink one night. And she said, I don't feel very confident. And I said, well, neither do I, actually. I, think, I, think, I don't think I'm going to make it. And she didn't. And, and I did. And, you know, I was obviously chuffed. 
I mean, this is before we get into anything like character, but things like um, on your contract, a lot of those things, a lot of those American series, you're signing something like a seven-year contract. Is that what you did? Um, and you have no knowledge then whether you're going to be used for seven seasons or half a season. So planning your life, buying, you know, getting a, somewhere to live, talking to your family, schools for children. I mean, you're really in, you know, you're, you don't really know what's happening at that point, do you? You don't. And, you know, our kids were very, very young. So we took the, um, we took the uh, decision not to fly my family out. So, um, you know, they came out for the school holidays and they came out for the summer holidays. But um, it was, it was, I've got a great wife and she kind of just said, go, go, you need to, you need to do it. And we were broke. We were broke. And I, at that stage in my career in England, I, I just knew it was over for me. N not, not that I haven't had a great career, a, a great career, but at that point in my career, I remember sitting on the set of Baby Father one year, which was an all black cast. And one lunchtime I was sitting there and I, I heard the three other, there was four leading actors, four black leading actors. And I heard three of them discussing an audition that they'd been to. And I was like, what's that? I went, oh yeah, we both, all three of us are up for this lead role in this new cop show. And I went, I didn't even get a call. And I, so I sort of knew that by then the dial was ticking away from out of the David Harewood into somebody else, into a younger somebody else. In theatre, it was Adrian. You know, I, I just knew that it was somebody else was getting the flavour. So I sort of knew my career was kind of, you know, hitting a bit of a dip at that particular time. So I was broke, David. So it was, it was, it, you know, it was very much, this was a lifeline for me. So she just said, go. And so I had to then ring up, um, you know, they sent you through a, um, a list of places to live. And I just took a punt, you know, and kind of looked at a few places online and, and, um, and, and then I had to, you know, you had to pay in dollars. So then you had to open an English bank, an English US bank account and pay in dollars. And it was, it was all, a, it was all a kind of feeling my way through to getting it all done. And practically, did you shoot the pilot, then wait for it to be picked up to go to series? Pretty much so. I mean, with, with something like Homeland, it was so good. The script was so good. We sort of knew. We sort of knew it was going to go. So it was sort of, even when we were filming it, there was, they were talking about, you know, when are you going to move here? And, you know, you know wh where do you think you're going to? So we kind of knew it was going to go. But when, it, when, it, when, you, when I got that call, it was, oh, it was just a... It was, uh, it was, how, how long after the pilot was that did you get to know that you were going? I think it was about a month. Um, and, um, you know, nervous. And, you know, again, waiting for that call to say, sorry, you're not going to make it. And, you know, um, I, I, I was lucky to be, you know, to be uh, accepted and, and, and off I went. And so how do you go about researching that role well, here's the thing as well. I, I knew nothing about it, nothing. So um, my first, my first, uh, I think the pilot took 17 days and I wasn't really needed a lot the first week. So I sat in my hotel room sort of reading, I downloaded this book of a history of the, a history of the CIA. I downloaded it on audio file and I just listened to it all day long. And, um, uh, I think I, I bought a Kindle and I, and I read 
I, I downloaded just loads of books on, this, on the CIA and counterterrorism. And funnily enough, I sort of, I don't know why, but I, I, I was tweeting about it. I open, and, and, and just some random guy, um, some random guy who, who still hasn't told me fully what he does, <laughs> kind, of, kind, of, kind of answered me. And I, kind of, and I kind of tweeted him back and started private messaging him. And I think he worked in the Secret Service because he started pointing me to books to read. And then he started, and then I started saying, well, what books do you think I should have on my desk in the show? He said, you should have something about Turkey. You should have something about Russia. You should have, and he, he started telling me what, so I started telling the props guys, I want this on my desk. I want that on my desk. And it just started filling in my world, of what, what sort of world I would be living in. And it was fantastic. Um, we, still, we still tweet to this day, but he's never told me what he does. But he, he just, every now and again, just kept giving me a steer on what sort of thing I should be thinking about. Because the, it wasn't really a character, um, Estes. It was more of a cipher. It was more of, it was more of something to stop um, Carrie. So he never had a... I found it difficult because he never had a backstory. Or they never wanted to build into that backstory. So she would just come into my office and it was never written that I was, I was in, in a meeting or I, it was just... She, she walks into Estes' office and, he's, and interrupts him. So I tried to fill that in and say, well, what, what am I doing when she walks in? So I started thinking, right, well, I'm writing about, I'm thinking I'm on, a, on a phone to somebody about Russia or I'm on a phone to somebody about drones. Or I'm, I tried to fill in those little gaps myself. And, um, and they commented on that at the end of that first season. They, they just said, we really liked what you've been doing because we didn't really write for Estes. They, they actually said to me, we didn't write anything for Estes, but you filled it in. But also what you really brought to the role, I thought was brilliant, was uh, status. That, you know, that sense that when they, it's always that thing of like the core creates the king and they did, they had deference to you. They knew that you were the person that they had to sort of uh, please or get, get to in order to be able to move. But you had this status, which was wonderful, I thought. This is, this is actually quite a complex and an important issue. Um, Dave, that, 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 you know, it's one of the complexities of being a black Brit in Hollywood because they do have deference to us. And I know for a fact that um, I did one of these cons, these conventions uh, a while ago, and I got on the bus and th there was a black actor sitting there and I kind of gave him the nod and he blanked me, totally blanked me. And I thought, whoa, and, and didn't think anything of it. And we did, I did the convention and we were all on the, on the bus on the way back and a few of us had been drinking and, you know, I was piping up and then he started piping up and, you know, we all started laughing and, and I, got off the, I got off the bus and I, and I kind of said, look, I said to him, I said, I'm going up to the bar, do you fancy a drink? And he went, yeah, I'll meet you up there in about 20 minutes. And he came up and we had a fantastic night and halfway through the night I said, I'm sorry, man, I've got to pull you up on this. I said, you blanked me when, you got, when I got on the bus. I said, what was that about? He said, oh, so I apologise. He said, I was up for Estes and I was this close to getting it. And he, he, so I was this close to getting it. And he said, you got it. And I, as soon as it was, when you, when you got on the bus, I went, that's that bastard who got Estes. <laughs> and he said, but I'll tell you what, he said, you were brilliant. And he said, he said, I understand that. He said, I think what I was doing was being an American, you know, giving it the American, a bit of maybe giving it a bit of a swagger something that 
and and, and I, uh, it, it's quite contentious this, but I do believe that as that as black Brits, we we can sort of drill down on character, just character. We don't necessarily have, we haven't come from the same political system that Americans have. And that allows us to be singular when it comes to character. And sometimes I think, and, and you know, sometimes I think that's what black Americans uh, spot in our performances, that we are not, we don't carry that political uh, elbow that they almost automatically possess, particularly in positions of authority. And, um, and, 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 I, and I think that was part of the success of that character, that he had an inner, inner strength, and it was just about character. It was a, it was about character, but it was also about intelligence, wasn't it? You felt that you know, it, you felt that when they walked into the room and, and they had to sort of convince him to to let them do one thing or let them do another, that they were dealing with someone who had, had got there via merit. That he was ac- absolutely there because of his intelligence. He'd been there. He knew what. There was backstory, though, wasn't there? I mean, there's a whole backstory with her. There's a whole thing that you talk about with your family, losing your wife and stuff. Did you know any of that sort of backstory when you started filming? When did you get the... I mean, you got the pilot, but did you then get the scripts piecemeal after that? Piecemeal after that. And and there was a little bit, there was a little bit of stuff that was coloured in, um, that he was divorced, uh, that I had a kid... Um, um, but that it was very sketchy, David. It was very, very sketchy, and uh, I was floundering. I've got to be honest with you. I was floundering in the first, the first six or seven episodes. I really was floundering. I was finding my place. I wasn't comfortable. And then I did my first scene with Damien, and it wasn't even the director of the episode. It was it was a pickup that we did at the end of a day one time. I drove in to do this pickup scene. It was directed by a director that I didn't know, and. Uh, it was a scene with my first scene with Damien, and um, we did take one. And then he called me out, and he and he and he said, D- "Do you know Damien?" And I said, "Yeah." And he said, "He said I could tell you're quite friendly with him." He said, "Give me give me a take where you where you uh, you're not quite as comfortable with him." And I just did one, Dave, that was just completely ambiguous, completely ambiguous, as if I wasn't giving him anything, and it clicked for me. It really clicked for me. And, I, and from that scene onwards, which was about six weeks into the shoot of the season, I thought, that's how I'm going to do this character. I'm just going to do it like you can't read anything I'm thinking about. Ambiguity. So I played every scene. I, I, I threw out my plans of what am I doing before? What am I doing afterwards? What's my backstory? I threw it all out the window. And I just went, to, for, a, I just went for ambiguity. Don't give anything away. And that served me. I, I then rid, I kind of then rid myself of any sort of backstory or need to do any sort of research. Let me tell you. Mentioned your first day. Uh, just talk me through the night before your first day. There's the sense of you know before you go on set to do your first day. You've got you've got the job, but you're about to walk on set with a lot of people, a lot of American crew, directors, producers. 
How are you keeping yourself? Because one of the things I have to say about your performance in all of it is this authority that you have. There's no sniff of nerves. No, you know, you look like you're born in that role. And I (laughs) (laughs) I was terrified, Dave. I was terrified. And, you know, Damien looks so confident. You know, he'd just done Band of Brothers. He looks so confident and, and, you know, it's Claire Danes, and I'd I, I watched Claire in in um, in um, what's the thing she won an Emmy for? You know, I, I knew she was an Emmy winner, and there's Mandy who's an Emmy winner, and you know, I, you know, and I was so nervous. And as you say, walking onto a set, playing an American, being a Brit playing an American with America, now it's second nature to me. Now I talk to lighting guys and crew, and they go, "Oh, you're English," <laughs> you know, they're they're shocked. But then I was really nervous. I thought people were going to be going, what's he, who's that? You know, I thought people were going to be laughing and, 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 um, you know, every time you, every time you, and you know what it's like, every time you see the showrunners whispering, you think it's about you, you know, and you think you're going to be turfed out at the end of the day. So I was really nervous. And my first scene was on the, on the tarmac of the airport, welcoming the, um, the, the, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the president. And it was freezing, Dave. It was like minus six. And my mouth, my mouth, nothing was working. You know what it's like when you're on stage, you warm up your lips, you warm up your mouth. And and I'd done nothing. I hadn't done any of that. And I was freezing. So I was talking like that in my American accent. (laughs) It was terrible. Uh, Cut. Okay, let's go again. Dave, Dave, it's great, it's great. Just relax, just relax. And you know, every when someone says relax, that's the last yeah. thing you do is relax. So I think I think I did about, and it's the first time I've, you know, in English in English TV, you don't really. I, I've done a lot of English TV, but it's you know, I don't know why, but I, I guess I was just really doubly nervous. You know, you're getting a, you know, you're getting your own close up. The, and the lighting was different in America for me. You know, in England, it was sort of sort of, you know, putting little peppers to make, you know, because they knew I was black and, you know, not quite being a bit nervous about mentioning how dark I was. In America, they knew full well what they were doing. Yeah, we need to put a thing on here for day, put bum bum. It was automatic. So I, I was, wasn't used to that sort of efficiency in terms of the lighting department and how 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 professional they were. And and this is your take. And, you know, it's not like, an, no one's in, I say in England prior, it was a little bit embarrassing because they'd say, oh, we need to bring a specific light in for Dave. And and whereas they were sort of lighting it properly, and I was like, this is all a bit professional. So I was really, really nervous. And actually, at the end of the day, they came up to me and said, uh, "How would you feel?" And I said, I, "I I knew I had a bad day. I knew I had a bad day." I said, "I'm I wasn't confident." I said, "Look, maybe I need a voice coach." And they went, "Yeah, yeah. Would you like one?" I went, "Yes, absolutely." And and they did. They got me an accent coach, a dialect coach, and. Uh, I sat with her every week and um, a couple of times every time I got a new script and I sat with her and, and went through it and she was also kind of giving me, you know, like they say aluminum and aluminum rather than, so it's little things like process, we say process. So there was little things like that that I was sort of learning um, throughout those first weeks and, and, and uh, once I got it and once I felt confident, um, I, I was just able to drop into it at a drop of a hat. And now I'm sort of sight reading in American. I don't really, I don't even think about it. 
So yeah, but I mean, there's a there is an element of you know nerves, stress. Also, you know, you're in a hotel room on your own. Those things. How do you protect yourself and look after yourself in those times? I mean, when I've done it, you know, it's there's times when you you can get quite low when you're away from home and you're nervous and it's a big deal. And, you know, we all give that front that we know what we're doing. But actually, how do you sort of look after yourself in those times? I try and I just try. It's a combination of physical fitness. You know, I try to keep myself, hit the gym. Don't get, I mean, I would say, I would say to young, don't be tempted to hit the bar. You know, it's, it's, a lot of actors particularly will, will head straight to the bar and it's a bit of a jolly and particularly if you're doing an accent it's just a bad idea because because you've got to try and remain professional and on Homeland there was none of that you know, Damien was never hardly ever in the bar Claire was hardly ever in the bar Marina not in the bar there was a real professionalism um, going I mean obviously as the series went on it was a little bit different but for that pilot the discipline was extraordinary. And so I, I would always say to uh, young actors, you know, even on the day, get out of your caravan, go and go and watch on set, go and just familiarise yourself with the set, go and stand behind the monitor and, and familiarise yourself with the language of the set, get a pair of cans from the sound man, listen, you know, watch. So that's, I sort of try to familiarise myself with the, with the set and try to learn people's names and try to um, get myself comfortable on set before I actually went onto the set as a, as a, as an actor so that it wasn't such a foreign leap for me to, um, to, uh, to, you know, to make that jump. We'll be back with more chat after this. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, you're listening to Who Am I This Time? With me, David Morrissey. Now, back to this week's episode. And, and also, so people know you. You know, I think that thing of if you're in your trailer all day and you just turn up for your scene, 
you know, the crew, people don't know you, get to know you, have your lunch with people, you know, really, I think, I mean, everybody does it differently, but I do think it is a, it's, it's a company of people, isn't it, really, that you're, you're involved with. Absolutely. And as you say, everybody's different, you know, and uh, I, I know some actors who all constantly stay in, stay in accent or, you know, stay in character. I can't be bothered to do that. I just can't be asked. You know, if, if that's your thing, do it. You know, if you want to, you know, stay in character and sit in your trailer and don't mix, fine. But, but I think, I think you, as you say, you miss out on the, the family aspect of the set and, and and it's it's that family aspect of the set which sort of gives you a ticket into the sort of you know the kind of VIP sort of you know the, the people talking to you crew talking to you crew relaxing for you crew going that extra mile for you saying no 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 it's not right we need to light this properly or no 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 it's not right we need to make sure so and so and so and they'll they'll go that extra mile if they if they if they feel you're responding to them whereas if you sort of you know what it's like if if you sort of think they're there to serve me, you, you'll you'll get you'll get you'll get short shrift very 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 quickly. You'll get the short shrift. The other difference for me about the, the UK and US is that particularly on you know long form television is you tend to have a director an episode, and so building a relationship with a director is difficult because they're in and they're out. I mean. Who are you on your uh, on the arc of your journey over the the whole season? Who's your touchstone? Is it the producer, the writer, the showrunner, or do you rely on episodic directors who come in? Well, something on like on Homeland, very much on the showrunners, um, and be- because it was such a high quality show, I guess you sort of automatically deferred to the directors because you thought they're not going to be here unless they're, they're, top, they're, they're top draw. So you sort of did. Whereas on Supergirl, which is I'm on now, you know, you, you, you're changing directors every 10 days and you can tell within an hour if someone knows what they're doing. You can tell within an hour how slow they are, their setups, you know, their, 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 their relationship with, with, um, with uh, running out of power their relationship with with um with the crew you can just tell within an hour and if if they lose it within that first hour they're done they're done and uh harsh. it really is it's harsh and you kind of go yeah whatever <laughs> and it can be it can be very it, it can chew you up whereas again if you if you get the right director you go wow at last i'm getting notes and somebody's speaking to me someone's giving me direction but it's uh it's a very very thin line you talked about like uh the type of books you wanted on your on the set in your office and stuff how much in in, uh, like input do you are you able to have in the way that your character looks and that and did you feel able and um just to say those things that, that, that you know i want these books this is what i want it to look like i want these ties i want this suit was that something that you were able and you felt freedom around that to a certain extent, yeah, um, because, uh, you know, I wanted to make sure that, you know, discussing it with, this, you know, you discuss these things with wardrobe. You know, one of the great things I've, I, one of the great things I've found in this business is I love wardrobe. Whereas I, I remember working on, I remember working early days on Robin Hood 
years and years ago. I was just appalled that the guy, the, the lad playing, the lad playing Robin, Robin Hood was always like, I don't want to carry this bow. I don't want to carry this. I don't want to wear that. I'm like, you're Robin Hood. <laughs> You've got to have your bow. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I really couldn't believe it. And I was like, I was astonished. So I sort of, I love, I love costume fittings. You go there and you go, that's not quite right. Oh, this, this is, this is it. This, this nails it for me. This, but the shoe, for me, it's always shoes as well. If I get the right shoes, I feel great. So I, I like creating character through costume. And and they like doing it with you, don't course. you? I mean, I've never come across a costume director who's blocked my ideas. They've, they've sort of uh, advised me and said things like, look, you know, that's going to be really hot if you're filming in Texas, you know, <laughs> things like that. But, you know, it's, a, it's the start. It's a really great part of the process for me is when I start finding the look, whether it's makeup or costume. Exactly, and 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 you, I I know there are you know because I've directed as well you know that that there are there are those that there are those actors now and actresses where their personal things come in and then it it starts you know they turn up on set looking like a Prada model and you just think that's just not right you know there's just no way you'd look like that in you know working for the CIA so you've got to be honest and you've got to be you know I I, I think. I think the, the the better the better actors don't take that sort of personal approach and, and want to be show pony. It's about if you if it's about character. I think you have a uh, I think there's more integrity about it. Have you ever come across on a set where you're you don't feel you're being heard by the by directors or or sometimes leading actors that you're working with that your your opinion and your ideas of how to perform the scene or your character in the scene is not being listened to. How do you deal with that? That's tough. Um, I wouldn't say that I, I'm, I'm pretty forthright, um, particularly now. So I sort of, if something isn't going the way that I, the way that I think I'll, I will sort of question it. But at the end of the day, you've got to kind of, I'm not going to sit there and front up the director and say this, your ideas are all nonsense. You kind of do it and, you have to, at the end of the day, you've got to do it to the best of your ability. And I've, I've found, I've found that if, if there is a real block, if I don't like doing something, then you get there and you, there's a half page monologue and you, you can, you thought it was going to be you and sitting, doing intimately and you walk in, I walked in and it was an auditorium and he wanted me to declaim it, kind of walking down the steps as it were, and I was completely wrong to what I thought. And I was like, I haven't learnt it like that. That's not how I... And I was resistant to it, but 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 because he wanted it that way, I thought, okay, I've just got to shake it off and just go for it. And actually, most sometimes it's actually great because you 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 you're in you're on the edge. And I always find sometimes you do your you do interesting work when you're on the edge because it's almost you're almost forcing yourself to do something which is uncomfortable. And uh, so I I would I would always. If I do meet a, a moment like that, I say to myself, "I'm uncomfortable here. This is going to make it interesting." So, so uh, I, 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 there might be resistance, but, but uh, you know, I'll, I'll do it because I'm, I'm not going to stand on and you know, I'm not going to have a stand-up row in the middle of the set with somebody because I want to do it one way and you want to do it another way. Some actors would. No, but I've I, seen that a lot. Yeah, I, I, I've been lucky, Dave. I've never actually. I've never actually seen stand-up row. I've seen one. I've seen 
I, you know, old Chris Eccleston one time really take a strip off a, off, off a director, which I thought was a bit out of order. But 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 I, I'd never I'd never seen an actor sort of refuse to to do something, and and I feel really uncomfortable when I do because I kind of go, what's the point of that? What's the point? You know? Yeah, there's there's ways of doing it, isn't there? That's you know you can still get your voice heard. I think. What about what about rehearsal when you're working? I mean, do you on the homeland the time you know time's quite tight, isn't it? Do you have a table read for each episode? Do you have any rehearsal, or are you just coming on the set rehearsing with the director and then you're off shooting? Is that it? Um, with homeland, we did have a, a read through of every single episode, um, and that was great. Actually, it's good to hear hear the episode read like that. Again, on something like Supergirl, which I've been doing for five years, we no longer do have a read-through, and we miss it, you know, because you know what it's like. You don't even read the script. <laughs> you just read bullshit, bullshit, my line, you know. It's like, you don't even... You, sometimes you walk into a scene and you just think, I don't know what's happening here. I have no, I have no idea what's happening in the story because I've only read my lines. I mean, it's, 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 it can be a really bad habit. Um, but uh, on something like Homeland, we had a read-through... And then you'll get to the set and there would be a kind of blocking uh, blocking rehearsal type thing. There was sometimes when Claire was having, um, was you know, when, when Claire's character was clearly having a, kind of a, when she was bipolar, when she was having an episode, one famous scene, which is, I think it ended one of the episodes when she's done the, she's done the mind board and worked out all the connections from Brody and Nazir uh, and I just walk in and and we we pull it all down, and and it it, it, it just said in the script. Estes walks in, uh, looks at the board, and 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 tells the tells the uh, directs them to to directs them to pull the stuff apart. But Claire was clearly ready for it. She was clearly on the edge, on the edge of tears. She was emotionally ready, and we, we just said, look, let's just shoot it. Let's just shoot it. There's just no point in rehearsing. And there was no line. As I said, there was no line to action me. So I just looked at... Me and Claire had our exchange, and she went, please, Dave. And I looked at her, and I just went, strip it. And it was, that was not... That was not... It was not scripted. But I just went, strip it. And all the agents went, and she just went nuts. And I held, I held her and sat her down, and she was crying. And actually, they played... They played the credits over the end of the scene, because that was the final scene in the, in the show of the episode and they played the credits over it because it was just so powerful. They just kept, and, and we let it roll for about five minutes until we calmed her down and like sat her down. But, and then he went, cut, great, move on. There's no point in doing that again. So, um, I mean, with the, with, with that, there's a great, you know, everybody goes, makes a decision to go for it at that point. Is it, is it other times when you feel like, a director or someone is getting in the way of that and how do you deal with that i mean what do you need from a director in order for you to just do your stuff you know what do what do you want a director to create around you in order for you to be able and you and the other actors to be able to fly it's i think it's just i mean i think it's just creating the right atmosphere and making sure that the stakes the stakes are high enough and really explaining to everybody, look, this is a really explaining what the moment is about. Um, and you know, it, it, TV is and obviously it's very wordy, and they say that you know movies are more about moments. 
But on something like Homeland, it was full of moments. And it's important that you, you give those moments air and let, allow them to breathe. If you're worried about time or if you're worried about blocking, it, it just gets in the way. So sometimes you just want to say, let's, let's just, you know, just, just let us, let us walk, you know, I, I don't want to have to do this line facing that way. I, I, I want to, I just want to be able to wander around and do what I want here. You know, if they say, could you favour this? Sometimes you'll say, okay, I'll favour, I'll favour this angle here. But what if I, the passion takes me and I want to walk over there? So it's, it's, you've got to, hopefully you don't have a director who is sort of, wants a specific, particularly when it's emotional, wants a specific emotion, but wants you to sort of, tailor it to a, a particular shot that's when it becomes really difficult because you're saying what if i'm really angry i want to get up and i want to get up kick the table over and walk out the door i don't want to you know i don't want to bring it down here and play it play it on my knees it, it's completely wrong so hopefully they make it a dialogue and they don't become too pedantic and too too strict and too to try, try and make it make it um you know, too, too rigid and, and, and too narrow. Yeah, that's what I want, is I want some sort of freedom. I want direction. I want the director to be there. I want guidance and sort of to feel that someone's outside looking at it and being able to make it better or different or whatever. But I need someone to give me the space to create and, and a safe and A, a safe space. Well. But, there's, but there's also, you know, again, with Supergirl, which is much more, it's, it's much more commercial, uh, you know, and and they write they write these em- huge emotional arcs for me sometimes. And there was one time where I just didn't feel it was emotion. I just didn't feel it. And I said, "This is just not that." I don't know whether it's the writing. It's just not. And he, and he wanted me to cry. And he, he kept, he, you know, cut. And then there'd be this discussion with the writer, and then he'd come up and go, yeah, "It was great, but and I, I think you should really. I want to see the emotion." And the, and I said, oh, I'll give it a go. And you know, take four, he was still coming up to me going, hey, no, can you, can you, I really want you to cry. And I'm like, I said, if it's not there, it's not there. And I got really upset with him. I genuinely got, the first time, I don't normally do this. But I said, dude, if it's not in the writing, I, it's, I can't pull it out of my ass. So, I, you know, and, and, and that, so that upset me. And I used that upset and put it into the scene. And at the end of it, he went, he went, it's great, it's great. And I knew it wasn't, it was, you know, I knew it wasn't. And I, later in the day, I walked up to him and I, just, I genuinely apologised to him. And I just said, look, you know, I'm really sorry that I was, you know, in your face, but it just wasn't in the writing. And he went, I'm really sorry, but it was the writer telling me to do that. It was the writer pushing me to do that. And I, I, I knew you, what you did the first time was great, but the writer kept saying, I really want tears, I really want tears. I think that's also the other thing sometimes on a set, and this happens not just in America, but in the UK as well, that you're aware that there's a committee behind the camera that are debating. And I find that always a little bit destabilizing when it's not coming to me via one voice. there's There's a series of people happening, you know. It can really throw you. So you finish the first season, you do that, you've had the rap party, you've come home. How long after that does the season, does the series hit the, our screens? Well, in America, we were we were already filming the first season um, when we were in a bit of a bubble in North Carolina. So we were filming when it started to go out. Oh, great! Okay, and it, we had no idea how big it was. It was huge, and people were suddenly stopping us in the street, or stopping Damien in the street, and stopping Claire in the street. And it was the I mean, it just, I've never been in something which 
captured the zeitgeist the way that it did. It was, people were hanging on to the last 10 minutes and going, oh, I've got to tune in next week. And it wasn't like Netflix where you could just download the next episode. It was like you had to wait for next week. And people were just glued to it, riveted to it. And then suddenly we were at the Golden Globes and within that first season, by the end of that first season, we were at the Golden Globes and we'd won and it was like, it was incredible. It was incredible. But how did that feel, you know, going back to 80 quid in the bank? Oh, Dave, um, as it's, uh, I've said, it was going to the going to the Golden Globes and the Emmys, that, 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 that the end of that first season was just extraordinary to suddenly be a, be a winner on stage, stand out, and there's De Niro and Pacino and DiCaprio and all Hollywood, Hollywood royalty. And I'm like, I had 80 quid in the bank. <laughs> it was the funniest, most incredible uh, experience ever. And I remember sitting there and Sidney Poitier walked past my table and I just went, I couldn't get my words out, grabbed his hand and started just shaking his hand. And he, I said, oh, I'm in Holland, and, and, and he went, yeah, well, congratulations, and kind of wandered off. But I was, I was just in a room with my, with legends, and it was very heady and, but wonderful because you'd, we'd won, so we sort of, auto, we, we sort of, we were straight to the top table. It's such a lesson in, in never giving up, though, isn't it? I mean, you were saying, you know, at the start of this, you were saying you were done, 80 quid in the bank, you were, and then, you know, just through fortune, whatever it is, but, you know, there you are but, at but, the top of your game. But, Dave, you know, I, 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 do, you remember the, do you remember the guy, Eric Estrada, who was in Chips? He, he was the dark, the, 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 the dark guy. The night after we won the Emmys, I'm sitting in this private secluded members bar smoking cigarettes smoking cigars with the hierarchy of showtime and all all our emmys are on the table and we're all giving it the big end and i'm thinking i'm in the club and i saw him and i went i went over to him and i went oh you're eric strada you're from chips and he was really quiet and he went yeah yeah and he, he listened to me he listened to me and he just went he leaned in and he went let me give you a bit of advice he said um when it's over and it will be just be prepared so this is, you know, he said, you're having a good time here. He says, but just be prepared for when it's over. And I kind of got the, I kind of got the hump with him a little bit and I kind of walked off. Little did I know that the next season, he was absolutely right. And I, and I sort of was prepared. So I, and, you know, I sort of, I don't know whether you want to talk about that, but I really was. And I kind of, when I got the nod, I kind of went, he was fucking right. He was absolutely I do right. want to talk about that actually, because that is the nature, you know, you've signed a seven year deal. And then suddenly, you know, this, your trajectory is that it could be this. And then someone knocks on your door and says, you're out here. How, you know, that is the actor's life. How do you prepare for that? Well, I mean, do, is it about just loving what you've done, keeping it in the day, enjoying stuff while it's happening? It, it was, I, had, I had a really, it was really weird for me because, um, it, it I, as I said, I was really nervous on, on, uh, um, in the first season and, and I had a really bad first day. But season two, Dave, I was, I was absolutely on it. I felt I'm on it here. I know this character. I feel really confident, much more confident with my American accent, much more confident on the set. And I was on it. So the first couple of episodes, I thought, nail this. Absolutely fantastic. Here we go. And then I got this script 
and 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 I and I it, it was it was SD's kind of it was when when um it was something to do with SD's finding it was Saul Mandy Patinkin's character comes around to say uh, you know that they're having a review and you know there's there's you know we there's been these these redacted files come through and we want to know what's going on here and I thought and my character says I'm vulnerable and I when I read the script I thought hey Hey, I did, Dave. I went, I went, I'm vulnerable here. I don't know why, but I had this inkling. My character was vulnerable for the first time in the whole show. And I thought, I might not make it here. And and we had this, the word was going out that there was going to be a major character gone. There was a little bit of a rumour going around, someone's gone. And people were taking bets. I mean, and... You know, people were saying it's going to be Damien. And a lot of people were saying, the only person who's safe, Dad, the only person who's safe is you. And I was sitting there going, I don't know about that. And then, so when we when we got to the we got to the Emmys, again, for the second season, and Dave, it was the weirdest night ever. Because nobody was looking me in the face. All these, exe- all these execs were going, hey, hey, Dave, how's it going? Great to see you. Hey, hey, great. And not looking me in the eye. And at the end of the night, I got back to the hotel and I went, I was really weird. Nobody was looking me in the face. I just felt it. And I flew back to North Carolina from the Emmy, from the Emmys. And I got this call. And when I landed, there was a call saying, uh, have you left town yet? Because the showrunners uh, want to speak to you. And I said, oh, I'm at home. And they tell them to call me. And I knew. I knew. I said, tell them to call me. I'm, I'm back I'm, oh, in an hour. I'll be back, uh, back in my flat. And I was a bit scared. I was a bit scared. I, was, I thought... My heart was pounding because I'll be honest with you, Dave, I didn't want to go back to queuing up outside the BBC, you know, waiting for a two bit part. And, you know, I I got a taste of being respected. I've got a taste of great scripts, great authorit- authoritative characters. I've got a taste of it. And I didn't want to go back to a two bit part where I'm playing the best mate of the main role. And, you know, I just didn't want to do that. So I was a little bit, I was a bit, that's one, that was my main fear. So I dealt with my pain and worry even before the phone call. So when the phone call came, I just said, look, I appreciate that. Thanks for telling me. But can you tell me, was it anything to do with my work? And they said, no, absolutely not. It was, you were brilliant. It's just the way the scripts panned out. And as it turned out, it was supposed to be Damien. But because the studio loved the relationship between him and Claire, they changed it, half, literally changed it mid-season. And just said somebody else. And it just came down to me. And um, I put the phone down, thought about it for a second, and immediately wrote them a letter. And said, just want to, to all the showrunners, and I, I literally I headed all the showrunners, all seven of them. And I wrote them an email saying, I just want to say thank you for two brilliant years. You've no idea. It's changed my life, saved my life because I was skinned. I just was honest. And I just said, Thank you. I said, my only, I said, my disappointment is only matched by the excitement of what's to come next. And every single one of them e- emailed me straight back and went, top man, thank you. Because normally we get their agents ringing, uh, their agents ringing up saying, why my character? And the agents, uh, actors are upset. And you just went, okay, cheers. Thanks. No worries. Yeah. I mean, you've just got, but also that thing of going back and playing two-bit parts, did you not feel that the work that you'd done over the no. last two years? No, I was yeah. very... You don't do it. I remember sitting in the Groucho with Clint Dyer, 
having a panic attack because I was really scared, Dave, really scared that I was back to England and back to the back of the queue. And I, I, I didn't, I didn't, I, I, I haven't worked in England for 10 years, 10 years. Um, my career has taken off in America as I'm directing in America. Um, maybe it's because I haven't had the time to, to work here, but I'm excited to come back now and see what, what roles that are available to me now. But at the time when I was, when I was back in England after this, I'd shot the second season and I was waiting for the seconds, waiting to be, for the audience to realize I'd been blown up. In that period, I was really scared. I thought, I'm never going to work again. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I'm out. I've had my, I've had my time hanging onto the coattails of the stars as it were. And, and now it's, I'm done. I remember working with John Hurt years and years ago when I was about 23 and we were coming to the end of the job and John suddenly starts getting quite, he's a wonderful man, but he suddenly started getting a bit sort of, you know, just a bit irritable and stuff. And I said to him, what's the matter? And he said, uh, he said, I've got nothing to go on to. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, there's no other job. There's no work coming in. I've got nothing. And I was like, you're John Hurt. And he went, I know, I know, but I've got, I've got, I've got no, there's nothing coming in. That's it. I don't know what I'm going to do. And I said, just take a break. And he looked at me like I'd, <laughs> like I'd just told him to sort of, you know, chop his arm off. But it was, and I thought, oh no, that feeling never goes away. That feeling, it doesn't matter how confident you are, all the work you've done, you still, and there must be something about us that slightly likes that sort of insecure feeling because that's what we do in the job. I, I, I guess so. Uh, I, I, I guess because I've been doing episodic in American telly for the last eight years and, you know, I mean, the lockdown, this is the longest I've been home for seven years. And, and I, I bought this house... Four years ago, this is the longest I've ever been in it. And it's, it's, so it has been nice to stop and take stock and realise where I am now. And actually now, I do look forward to ending Supergirl after seven years. I do, I, and I, I do look forward to sort of putting my feet up and thinking, well, what's next? And I'm now at a, I'm now at a stage where I, I, I would like, I, I know I am sort of excited to, not to say pick and choose, but to suddenly go, I can, I can say no now. For many years in my career, I, I just grabbed the first thing that came along it, because I needed to pay the rent. I needed to pay the mortgage. Whereas now, hopefully, I'm in a position where I can go, oh, I'll pass on that. And I do know actors of my age, Mark Warren, a great example, I love Mark. He's forever turning stuff down, forever turning stuff down. And I'm like, how do you turn work down? He says, oh, I just don't want to do it. It's the leading role in some big ITV show. I don't want to do it. And, and I've never had that. I've never been offered a huge role like that and gone, nah, I don't fancy it. It's, uh, it's a luxury. And um, I'm hoping, not that I, I want it just to be able to turn it down, but I'm hoping I've now got enough work in the bank behind me to be able to, you know, consider a part rather than grab it. And do you want, do you want to do more directing? Yes, I want to create. I've got um, a project I'm working on very, very early days I'm working on now that I want to direct and um, help uh, produce. Um, and this, this moment, this Black Lives Matter moment, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, I do feel that our consciousness has just kind of risen a little bit more, there's a bit more awareness now. So I, I do think there's, there's, 
a time to, to to propose series that perhaps even a month ago people probably wouldn't have wouldn't have sort of wouldn't have uh, even considered because now something going oh hang on a minute that's an interesting project or that's an interesting idea uh, so so I do think it's a good time so I'm kind of keen to get back to England and 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 work here and see what I can do. But just to wrap up a little bit, because I think this is really important for people who are, you know, in our uh, starting out in our job or whatever. Is you know, Homeland was massively successful. It was massively well received. But when you get the knocks, when you get the bad reviews, or you're not getting the calls or whatever, how do you deal with that uh, personally when when things aren't going so well? What, what do you rely on to keep you going forward uh, as a person and creatively? I think I did a documentary on this actually years ago uh, called The F Word and it, it, it's, it's failure. And it's, it, we have to, you have to develop a relationship with that aspect of our, our, our industry because it's as much a part of the industry as success. And I remember throughout that, I interviewed a lot of people throughout that documentary, but Ed Zwick said to me perfectly, he said, you don't learn anything in success. You just keep rolling from success to success and you think, oh, this is working, carry on. He said, but the minute you have a failure, the minute you have a bad review, that's when you really, ex- what, what went wrong there? And you really do a bit of soul searching. You have a look at yourself. You reassess what went wrong. You ask yourselves important questions and, you learn resilience. And I, and I think failures and knockbacks teach us resilience and we need it. We need to learn that and we need to develop a relationship uh, to it because none of our careers are sort of on the hor- consistently on the horizontal. Nobody. Everyone's going to have a bad period. Everyone's going to have a bad review. Everyone's going to find themselves in a bit of a sticky situation. And it's that... It's at that moment when the resi- your stores of resilience that you've built up from all the knocks you've had comes into play. And for, for me, it's like I try, to, I try not to take it personally. And I sort of, you know, even, even if I really want a part, it doesn't work out. Yeah, I might get down for a day, but then I just forget about it. I try to forget about it. It wasn't your day. Um, so I, I, success, failure is as much, and knockbacks are as much a part of our industry as 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 success and i would i would encourage people keep your eyes open when when you're not things aren't going well for you because that's when you that's when you're really learning resilience that's when you're learning stuff and as they say you know tough times don't last but tough people do you know you it's it's a it's learning resilience and uh, and when when it does when it does finally break for you you'll be ready for it you'll be ready for that moment you you know you, you know was it you know the more I practice, the luckier I get. You know, it's 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 uh, it's just about building that resilience, and um, it pays off when you finally grab something because you'll you'll find your stores of your stores of resilience to sort of can pour into whatever it is you're doing, and makes it all the more happier and all the more joyous. Yeah, and you enjoy the work more. I think that thing of you really. If you you appreciate the work and when you're working more because of those times and it's really important. Uh, and, and and you know you know what it's like in the states and they're really they're really they're really diff- you know they kind of Mr. Harewood and they're they want this Mr. Are you okay Mr. Harewood and one time this guy knocked on my door and I'd, I'd been waiting eight hours or something to do a shot and he came in and he was like I'm really sorry and I went dude don't worry about it 
how lucky am I to be sitting on set, you know, working, getting paid, you know. I mean, there are, there are certain actors who complain to producers because they've been on their trailers for three hours. And I just think, put the telly on. Put some music on. Read a book. Read a book. <laughs> What's the matter with you? You're moaning that you're on set, for th you're in your trailer. I, I've never understood it. And I, I always catch myself, before I complain, I always catch myself and I say, what else would I be doing? You know, I mean, yeah, if you've got a family and you want to be at home, that's a different matter. But I just say to myself, I'm being paid to sit here and wait. And um, so I, I always, gratitude is, is a great quality to have in this industry. And always remember that, you know, you're there by the grace of God, you know, you are there and plenty of other people aren't. So just be grateful for that opportunity. Oh, David, it's great to talk to you. Thank you very much. And thanks for, I mean, revisiting Homeland. It was so great to see it again. Oh, I'd love and, to see it myself. Uh, I haven't sort of seen it for ages. Oh, it was great. Well, listen, thanks for joining us on the podcast and all the best. Cheers, pal. Who Am I This Time? is a Just Voices and Dulali production. Produced by Simon Lennigan. Music by Greg Hatwell. Edited and mixed by Russ Keffert at Audio Egg and presented by me, David Morrissey. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.